invite you to open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. shouldn't be too hard to find it. It's the first book of the Bible, and we're in the second chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles available for you in the seats right there. If you don't have a Bible yourself, feel free to use it and then to take it as our gift uh, to you this morning. We've been looking at the book of Genesis, focusing in on the, the thoughts of, Lord, what do you have to say uh, about us? What are the answers that you give to life's most important questions? And for the last few weeks, we've been sp- speaking specifically about humanity. And God, what do you have to say about humanity? How are we to view ourselves and how are we to view the world around us? And today, we're going to come and we're going to hone in on a very, very specific aspect of the human experience. And that's marriage. What does God have to say about marriage? What we're finding is that um, culture has a lot to say about marriage. And over time, we have seen cultures thinking on marriage shift. Recently, the New York Magazine did a series of articles. They called it an investigative piece, which I thought, how much does marriage need to be investigated? I I didn't know. Um, One of the articles that began this series was called Marriage obsolete. Is marriage obsolete? Here's, here's their thing. And I will have to say, the author who wrote this, writing some of these things, just a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but, but you'll get what she had to say. In the article, Is Marriage Obsolete? The author said, Isn't it reasonable to question the value of a legal contract written in ink on paper that involves disastrously punitive forms of dissolution? when it's paired with an enormously expensive ceremony that offers allusions to obedience and lifelong mutual suffering and death of all things. She goes on to say, these days, there are limited economic advantages to marriage. A planet's worth of mates more easily perused and accessed now than ever before in human history and a host of inconveniences to being married along with the untold drudgery, monotony, frustration, and regret. Add to that, 40 to 50% of all marriages in the United States end in divorce anyway. Considering all that, what could possibly be the point of this outdated charade? Wow. Okay, well, um, she says those things, but then as she goes into the article, she, she doesn't necessarily hold to everything she wrote here, but... But this is a perspective. These are questions that people are asking. How should we think about and view marriage? And so today we're going to take a look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. We're going to say, well, God gives an answer to it. God shapes for us a view of marriage. And so as we prepare to look at it, let me just say a couple of things. In a church family like ours, anytime you come and you focus on something like marriage, you immediately recognize that there are people all across the spectrum in in the relationship sphere. So, so for instance, you're here and you're married today. And so, so this message is going to have just like immediate application for you because we're going to about marriage, and you're going to see how the truth of what God proclaims to us is so significant to what you're dealing with each and every day. And so, so just right out of the chute, you're going, to, you're going to take a lot out of this, I believe. Some of you here single, and you're going to maybe one day get married. And so this message is important for you because I believe what God has to say here are some of the truths that he wants you to, to store, to treasure in your heart that will be the foundation for your future relationships. Others of you 
are single here today and you think I'm probably never going to get married or it's not in the, you know, for me, it's in the cards. And so you might say, I don't know how applicable this message is or I can tune out. I would say, please don't because you're part of a church family. You have brothers and sisters in the Lord who are married. And what you're going to hear from God's word are those truths that their hearts might need and that you might be the one that God will use to deliver those things at a time and a place that they so desperately need it to be encouraged in their marriage. So there is something here in this message for for every. And so I invite you to pick up your Bibles and read along with me as I come to verse 18 of chapter 2 of the book of Genesis through verse 25. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And then said, this is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and not, what, ashamed. This is the reading of God's word, amen? So this is what God's word has to say about marriage. It's here in these chapters that we have the first wedding and marriage instituted. And so from this passage, the first thing that I want to address is what I call the essence of marriage. The essence of marriage. Now that's not male cologne, all right? The essence of marriage. I want to in the word essence to understand what is this thing called marriage? I mean, when you think about marriage, if you think about it at all, what is The culture, society, they're saying some things about it, but what is marriage? What's the definition of marriage? Really prominent society that are being said about marriage today. The, the first is this. We talk about marriage today is purely uh, a human construct, social construct, something that human beings evolved, established within cultures for the purpose of keeping community united. And so marriage is simply a construct. It's something man-made. Now, according to Genesis 2, can we agree with that? The answer is no. Marriage is not a man-made. Marriage is not the invention of man, but Genesis 2 tells us it's made by, by God. It's part of his design. He makes the man, he makes the woman, he brings them together. The two shall become one flesh. Marriage is something that God has created. It's not a it's not an invention of man, despite what the sociologists might want us to believe. But the second thing that the passage helps to correct is a view within our society 
that comes and says something like this. I don't need a piece of paper to tell me or the world that I love this person. People today who are often living together, experiencing what God has designed in the context of marriage, they're living in relationship with a person of the opposite sex, and they're saying, I love this person, they love me, why do we need to get married? Why do I need a piece of paper to tell me that I love this If that's all that marriage is, is just a present declaration that you love, if that's what marriage is, why make a big deal? The truth, though, is that marriage is something far deeper than just you coming and declaring your love for another person. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we have that famous verse where it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, in some of the older translations, some of you might remember that it was translated. Now, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Have you ever heard that phrase? You know, to leave and cleave is, is, is what some heard. They're both communicating the same thing, fast and cleave to another person. It's the language that is throughout the Bible to refer to a covenant commitment. And so when we think about marriage, marriage is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. What is the of marriage? It is a covenant that two people are entering into. If we're going to say anything about it, we must say this. It's a unique thing. You love somebody. It's not just a, a piece of paper. You are engaging in a binding relationship in a covenant. Malachi 2 says that marriage. The Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, those companion and your wife by what? Covenant. The rest of the Old Testament, the New Testament, draws out this idea that when a person enters in, a marriage relationship, they're entering into a a commitment to another person. In fact, more fully said, the marriage covenant is a promise of commitment to present and future love. What is the essence of marriage? The marriage covenant is a promise of commitment to another person of and future love. It is a deep thing. It's not just purely a piece of paper contact. It is a thing that you enter into that involves relationship that means commitment. Commitment to what? Um, particularly commitment to loving the other person. Now, the reason why we don't get the depths of marriage, the reason why we don't get how, what a that this is what marriage is, is because we've lost our understanding of what love is. At least love biblically. Because if you were asked today, what is love? They will first and foremost respond to you that love is this idea of attraction, this uh, feeling, this emotion, uh, this desiring of another person. In our society, we have this far too narrow of what love is. And so therefore, to say that I'm committing to somebody, to their love, it's not that big of a 
deal. But you can't fulfill this marriage commitment if you don't understand what love ultimately is. See, biblical love, I've used this definition for years. Biblical love is this, seeking person at great cost yourself. If you know the kind of in a marriage that you're covenanting to show the other person, both now and into the future. It is to seek their even at great cost to yourself. We get this because it says that God is love. We know what love is, not that he loved us, or not that we loved us and sent one and only son to do what? To die in our place. To die so that we might of life. You want to know what love actually looks like? You look no more than to God himself sending Jesus Christ. This is a deep, this is an abiding love, unlike anything else. Does it involve emotions or emotions engagement? Absolutely. But love, according to the is not first and foremost feelings. It's not just about attraction. Actions of love. Somebody's good, even if it costs you dearly. And so when I stood before who were there that day in my wife, Hannah, some 17 years ago, I was making a covenant commitment to her. I was saying that I will seek your good even at great cost to myself, and that will last until death do us what? Part. In fact, so binding is the covenant relationship with somebody else. In the Bible, it says there's really only two things that could break that covenant, that could free you from that covenant that you make. One is if the other party um, engages in a sexual relationship with someone who is not their spouse, if they violate the covenant, or two, if one of the spouses abandons the other. We are making this commitment to both present and future love. The reason why this is such a big deal is because C.S. Lewis get from books the idea that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, they find that they are not, i.e. in love, they think this proves they have made a mistake, entitled to a change, not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love that went out of the old one. If you understand the essence of love according to what God says, you understand it's for the long haul. That you're not committing to feelings of affection for the person today. You're committing to seeking their good today and until death. And it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, in sickness or in health. This is how powerful and big this type of covenant is. And when you enter this type of covenant, what happens is this. You are willing to make the investment to the other person. You're willing to make the sacrifice for the other person. You're willing to say, how I feel today won't take my covenant with you tomorrow or today. Because it's not about changing feelings and emotions. It's about the fact that before God and before others, I've made this commitment. And so we come and we say, this is the essence of marriage. 
This is a big thing. It's a serious thing. And sadly, most people, as Christians, I don't think fully understand the depth of what this is. But when you do, do, you are able to make it through the ups and the downs because they will come. Two psychologists from UCLA back in 2013 did a survey, or I should say a long-term research project, with 173 couples over an 11-year period. And would you believe surprise? They found that couples that understood that marriage had a deeper commitment component to it than just being attracted to the other person, that those marriages had a lesser rate of divorce and were more happy than those that didn't. To which I say, no, duh. <laughs> I said, I just had to go to Genesis chapter to figure that out. I didn't have to spend 11 years with 173 different couples to figure it out. But this is what God's got. God says, this is the essence of it. But he doesn't just say, here's the essence. He comes and he points to the design. Did you know that there's a design with marriage? That marriages are designed to function in a certain way. We've looked weeks that men and women are different. Another shocker, I know, but bear with me. The male and female are not interchangeable. And so you would think that if male and female are not interchangeable, then the roles that are given to a man and a woman within marriage would also not be interchangeable. God has designed men and women to function differently within inside marriage. Husbands and wives are different, but complementary roles established from the beginning. Husbands and wives have different roles, but they're complementary. These were established at the beginning. What are the roles that exist between husbands and wives? Very simply, we see it in Genesis 1 and 2, extrapolated to the Bible. The husband is responsible for the leadership of the home. The wife is responsible for being his helper. In the most simplistic way that I can put it out, how God has designed the marriage relationship. Husbands are called to lead, are called to be the helper. This doesn't mean that the wife is subservient to the husband, to be the helper to the husband. We saw last week, up what is lacking in person. And so when we look at God's design within marriage, he has established these roles. And we've already seen that the role of a man being the leader in the home, it's shown in the fact that the man is created first. The man's given the responsibility to name all the animals, including the wife. The woman was created by man, verse 18, to be his helper. It says in verse 24 that the man will leave his father and mother to new family. It's the man leaving and establishing a new family. And then when you come to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they sin. Spoiler alert, they ruin everything. Adam and Eve disobey God, and although Eve who sins first, who does God address when he speaks to both of them for the first time after their sin? The man. He speaks to Adam. Adam was given the responsibility to shepherd and to protect his wife, yet he left Eve open to that. She took the fruit and then she gave it to him. He didn't intercede as he should. Not only do we see that taking place, the curse that then is transmitted to all humanity. Adam, the representative for the human race, 
believe Romans 5.12 points to, 5.15 points to this truth. And then finally, when God says, all right, you disobeyed. Here's the consequence. Here's now what's going to happen because of sin. He talks to the man and he talks to the woman. And he says to Adam, he says, here's the deal. You're going to abuse your leadership. You're going to use it in a domineering way over your wife. And then he says, you're going to strive to usurp now your husband's authority. So you see God saying, these roles were good, but you're going to now fight against it. So man and woman, created, distinct, are also given different roles within the marriage. Marriages are designed for the husband to take the leadership role and the wife to come alongside and help him fulfill what that role is. Now, as a point of clarity, let me say this. It's important at this point. For the wife to be the helper of the man does not mean that she is subservient to the husband. She, she is not his slave. In fact, the man is to use his leadership role to ultimately enable his wife and his family to flourish. He's not to use it to abuse and to get from her what he wants. In fact, we know this because, very simply, the call upon the husband and the call upon the wife in the covenant relationship is to love one another. I'm a simple guy. Sometimes we think about marriage and we think about, oh, it's complex. You know, men are different than women and women are different than men. And they are. We're made differently by God, but we've been made complementary. And so what does it look like for the husband to lead his, his home? Somebody says, tell me what that looks like. I say, start with this. Seek the good of the other person, even at great cost to yourself. If you're called to lead and you have seek her good, even at great cost to myself, will somebody who has that mindset ever seek to abuse the other person? No, because they're using their leadership they're good in the same way the woman, if she understands her call to love, is to seek her husband's good, will use her gifts and her talents to support him in what he's doing and will not look to demean him or to cut him down. But if we don't have in our mind that we are in a covenant relationship where we are committing to present and future love, then we're going to just mess this thing up. The husband is going to be, well, there's two things will we'll end up doing. Either one, the husband will be tyrannical. He will use his position to ultimately get what he wants. He will oppress his wife. If husband, you are not seeking the good of your spouse, if you are only looking at her for what she can do for you, then you've lost sight of what your role is as a husband. And I would say, Use today as a day to repent of that and to seek the Lord's forgiveness. The other extreme, though, that the husband can go to is to passivity. Passivity. Rather than trying to the other person for what they can do for them, become passive. And instead of seeking the other person's good, you don't do anything for the other person. It, you, just, you just let life go by, not seeking them to, to flourish. And that, too, is a in the eyes of God, because if you're not seeking the person's good, then you're ultimately doing harm. In the same way, the wife is going to be tempted to two extremes. She is going to look to in 
her own sin because of the fall, seek to usurp the man, demean him, belittle him, accuse him of what he should be doing and saying, I can do those things better than they can. God says, don't, don't go there. You're to be his, his helper and to build up and to come alongside. At the same point too, don't go all the way to passivity yourself where you just sit there meekly by letting the man do whatever he is going to do and command you to do whatever you're called to do. God doesn't call you to a submission where you can never speak in the life of your husband to point him to Jesus Christ and where he fails to call him out. If you're in a relationship like that today and you've experienced that kind of abuse and you're part of a church family, I invite you, I beseech you, come to us so that we can help you. If your husband is failing to, to do what God has called him to do, to protect biblically and instead is abusing you, then the church family is a place where you should come to find that protection and care. Because this is how God has designed these roles. And if you know what this looks like, how this works together, how can somebody lead and not abuse, and, and how can somebody help but not become subservient? Have you ever seen in the Olympics, the time you've probably ever watched this, that the two men or the two women row crew teams. Have you seen that? They have those really, those really small rowing boats, and there's two people in there, and, and they're rowing in sync, and they're going, they're trying to win the race, and there's just this perfect harmony as the oars go in the water, the pushing and the pulling, and they're and they're going after it. Most people don't realize. While teamwork is happening, there is one person who is responsible for the cadence of that boat. There is one person who's calling out when they are to stroke so that they're in sync. They don't get in that boat and they just say, go, when they both start doing it together. There's somebody who's taking the lead. Yet when the race is done, they both receive the gold. They both receive it. But somebody takes on the role of leadership in the same way in the in the home the husband is called to lead the wife is to come alongside but one is not greater than the other and you know why i say that even though the roles are different one is not greater than the other you know why i say that because how the roles work in harmony are illustrated in the godhead in the godhead itself father son and holy spirit did they function with different roles the Father sends the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Son, it's in Philippians chapter 2, listens to the Father, fulfills the work that the Father sends him to do. Is Jesus Christ any less God than God the Father? No, but he illustrates to us what a relationship built on love looks like when each takes on different roles. And then the Son, then the son sends the Spirit and the Spirit glorifies the Son as the Son and glorifies all three different roles. And from you and I looking from the outside in, it looks like the Son is, is submissive to the Father and he is in his incarnation. He does what the Father calls him, but the Son is no less worthy of worship and praise than the Father. Instead, work in this perfect harmony. It's a picture of what our marriages are to look like. Seeking the good of another, even at great cost to oneself, 
The husband does it as he leads. The wife does it as she comes in support of her husband. The essence of marriage, it is a covenant between two people, a covenant of present and future love. The design of marriage, husbands and wives, each fulfilling their complementary roles with each other, knowing what their roles are and living out those roles in love. This leads us to our third and final thing, the mindset of marriage. To do this, to live in the essence of marriage, to live out the design of marriage, there's a mindset. Originally when I was preaching, coming to preach on this passage, I thought to myself, all right, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit here in Genesis 2, but then we're going to go to the New Testament where all the stuff is on marriage. But in reality, Genesis 2 actually paints for us the foundation for those things that the New Testament authors later cling on to. So for instance, we see verse 3, this is a my bone and flesh of my flesh. Do you know what the mindset we see? I care as much for my spouse's well-being as I do my own. Number one mindset that Adam is telling me to have here is that I want to care as much for my spouse's well-being as I do for my own. When he says this is flesh of my flesh, he's saying two important things. Number one, she's made of the same stuff. She has equal value and worth as I have. It's not just that. He's also coming and saying, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She is an extension of me. So, so what happens to her and how she is treated is exactly what, what should happen to me. So the bone flesh, the same care that I should give to my spouse. Jesus picks up on this and, and, it, and explains it just a little bit more clearly in the New Testament. Love your neighbor as your what? Self. When Adam says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, I turn to a covenant relationship. When I did that with Hannah, I'm saying, this person now deserves as much care as I would give to my own self. That's a mindset to have. They can't be discarded. Their feelings, their thoughts, their very livelihood need to care as much for that as I do for my own, which leads to the second mindset that we find here. And that I will live and act as we and not just me. This mindset is found when Adam comes and says, when the, when the author of Genesis comes and says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become what? One flesh. No longer I in the marriage. I'm not saying that there's not individuality. Who you are, your personality and your difference in your spouse, they go on. They carry on. I'm not saying that you morph into one person in the sense of your personality and your preferences and all those things. I'm saying, though, that whenever you make decisions, whenever you speak, whenever you act, what you say, what you do impacts the other person. That you don't make decisions in isolation because you are now one. There remain differences. There was a news story that I saw recently about a couple that had been married for 60 years. And for every day of those 60 years, they wore virtually the same outfit. They matched each other. This is my wife's nightmare. So help 
we're both wearing jeans and we go out in public. She's like, you need to change. What? Everybody wears jeans. We look too similar. Like, so this isn't saying that you morph into one. What it's saying, though, is I want to think about my actions as they impact this other person. It's now we and not just me. But there's one final part here. A mind have, and that is this. I will pursue and cultivate transparency and trust with my spouse. Not only will I care for my spouse as much as I care for myself, not only will I think that we are now we and no longer just me, but I will also look to pursue and cultivate transparency and trust with my spouse. Where do we see this in the text? It's verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Do you know what's being said? Adam and Eve, existing in a world where there was no sin, were completely open and transparent with one another. Nothing hindering their ability to engage. Now, we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. But the aim of our minds, the minds that we're in, is still the same. To engage the one who we're in a one union with in this type of transparency and trust. We're to pursue this, to cultivate this. The greatest way that we remain open before one another is by confessing our sins to each other, seeking forgiveness from one another when we are not what we should, should be. But our mindset should nonetheless be this. Now, no sooner do I say these things, no sooner do I say, well, here's the essence of marriage. Uh, here's, here is ultimately the design of marriage. Here's the mindset that we're supposed to have in marriage. That I'm pretty sure most of us in this room are hearing this and thinking to ourselves, yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite hitting it all perfectly. Maybe some of you have been in a broken relationship. Maybe, maybe you have been in a covenant marriage and then it broke apart. Maybe you sit there as a husband or a wife and you're like, I'm not seeking the good of the other person. Like, I, I don't have that. I don't have the mindset I should have, Dave. I, I haven't been functioning according to, to God's design. If you find yourself in that place, here, here's the message that I have in closing for all of us. To know of marriage, the design of marriage, and the mindset of marriage is all great and good and absolutely necessary. But it must all be tied to this. And it's this very simple truth. Because of Jesus Christ's covenant with me, because of Jesus Christ's covenant with you, I am forgiven for my failures, for my sins, and am empowered for success in my life. Because of Jesus Christ's covenant with me. Because do you know that? Do you know that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it says for our sins, he did it so that he might enter a covenantal relationship with you and bread and the cup. And when we hold the cup, we say, this cup, quoting Jesus, is the in my what? Blood. Jesus enters into covenant relationship with you and me, and because he does, 
because he sought my good and your good at great cost to himself. For the person who in their marriage and you your sins are forgiven. And for the person who fails in their marriage and feels like they, 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 they can't do what God has called them to do, the truth is you are empowered to do so. The Holy Spirit is given by the Son to you and to me to enable us then to pursue God's design for our relationship, to give us the ability to have the mind of Christ. This is so evident in Ephesians chapter 5. Listen to these words. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? How did he love you? How did he love me? He gave himself up for her. Up for you and for me. That's a big love. That's a sacrifice. So when I'm not like just bumping my gums. I'm not just like making this up when I say that. Love is seeking the good of another person, even at great cost to yourself. Jesus did it first before he ever called you to do it. And But then this is what Jesus did. It's, and I'm going to change it to, to the personal pronoun here. Having cleansed you by the washing water with the word so that he might present you to himself in splendor with spot or wrinkle or any such thing that you, that I, might be holy and blameless before him. That's why I can say, if you have entered into covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, you might have really messed up in your marriage. You might not be living in a marriage the way that God has designed today. Through repentance, confessing your sins, you can live and know the forgiveness that's already yours in Jesus. And you can, can then draw your mind back to the truth that because he died for me, he gave me new life, I can have this mindset in myself so that you and I might live as the husbands and wives he's called us to be, to the praise and the glory of his name and for the good of all people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray over us right now through the name of your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, that we would not leave this place trying to go out and to do what your word has called us to and designed here apart, resting in the covenant that Jesus made with us. It's a covenant, Lord, that we didn't enter into because of what we've done, but because of what Christ did. And so may we be a people that embrace that, that cherish that, that the marriages, Lord, the marriages that we covenant to in and through you would reflect the relationship that you have with us. Help us to forget that today we are not sinners in and through Jesus Christ. We are saints. Lord, help us to believe this and to walk in the identity we have as your sons and as your daughters. Glory of your name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.